quick reminder, Ecclesiastes, uh, um, those are the resources to keep pulling from. The big two that I'm pulling from today are uh, this uh, Recovering Eating, Zach Eswine and Sidney Gradanus, Preaching Christ from Ecclesiastes. Um, all right, uh, <clears throat> there's no way you remember, but uh, three weeks ago, uh, the preacher of Ecclesiastes talks about uh, life in the house of God, uh, which back then would have been the temple. That's the place where the presence of God was. And we talked about how the body of Christ is now us, his people. And when we gather together, he's here in a special way. And so we talked about that. Um, and now uh, the preacher's gonna do something different. He's gonna turn back, uh, back to kind of life out there. And um, <clears throat> this was kind of a... Uh, a somewhat common conversation I got to have back in campus ministry a lot. It was, it was almost like clockwork, all right? It would be like September, October, uh, and I would sit down with some college student <clears throat> who had worked at a, uh, at a Christian summer camp that summer. And that, su- that summer when they were working at the camp, it was transformative. Like there was a real sense that God, they heard God's word, they were around uh, good friends in a way they'd never been before. They were serving other people. And now October, November, they'd been back in college for a few months. And this, this was always the conversation. They were like, how can I get back <laughs> what I experienced at summer? They would always talk about how just kind of the ordinary college life, it, it, just, it just feels so far off. But what I had back, at, back being a counselor, somehow that nearness to Jesus, I felt, that, those friends, how do I get that back? Um, and the question in real sense was, how do I learn the presence of God in every ordinary life? Because unless you own a camp, which would be awesome, <laughs> uh, right, that summer camp is not the, the ordinary life. It's just not. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes, this is what I think is awesome about him, is he takes that honest look at the world, the world as it really is, full of death and suffering and disappointment uh, and confusion, and it's a world filled with beauty, and he says, actually, there's a wisdom you can have in the real world. There's a, there's a way you can maintain the sense of God's presence in the ordinary life. Not, not by removing yourself and going back to something, but right here. Um, and so that's what he turns his attention to uh, back in chapter 6 and 7. We're just going to pick a few. We're having to squeeze Ecclesiastes a little bit because of our, uh, uh, we had to skip a couple weeks because of special things. But um, here's, uh, here's our questions I want you to discuss with uh, with somebody to get us ready. So if you're sitting near somebody uh, or meet somebody new, just give about five minutes to discuss these. Um, so th- most of these are quotes from what we're gonna read. He says, he says, I've seen a man whom God gives wealth, possessions, honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. So I want you to think about that, that obs- right? The preacher of Ecclesiastes is always making these observations and making you think about them. So he says, I've seen somebody who has everything. He has fame, he has uh, money, he has honor, yet he does not have the power to enjoy those things. So what would keep someone from enjoying those things? I want you to discuss that. Uh, second of all, uh, we're, we'll read this first. He says, there's a wisdom when you acknowledge that the day of death is the better of day than the day of birth. Okay, remember, he's always saying these things, trying to get you to reflect, think through I don't know, just, just talk about how in the world could the day of death be better than the day of birth? Why would he say that? What's he trying to get you to grasp on? And then uh, this is actually, this, this isn't a quote from the Bible, this is a quote from Zach Eswine, but as he, 
As he gets into suffering and sadness, you're going to see that uh, he talks about. That's why it says this. Wisdom does not use sad things to avoid life. Wisdom uses sad things to learn life. That's a very rich statement, I would say. Try to, try to talk about what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to use sad things to avoid life rather than to learn life, all right? So take about five, six, seven minutes, discuss those things. Um, see what you come up with. All right. Hold on to some of those uh, answers. We're gonna come back to some of them. Um, <clears throat> Okay, so if we're thinking about how, uh, <clears throat> how do I uh, live the good life, grow to be wise in the real world that's broken and, yes, beautiful, but also filled with death and disappointment, also has hope. Um, it's real interesting. This is one of the common things that, that, uh, themes that Ecclesiastes deals with. Uh, it's money. That in the, real, in the real world, you're going to interact with money, and he says there's a wisdom and a foolishness to that. Uh, here's what he says in verse 10. <clears throat> he says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Um, okay, this is, I, this is some of the most like piercing <laughs> wisdom principles on money in the Old Testament. And he's going at the fact that, again, all, like... Yeah, okay, look, he says he who loves money will not be satisfied. He doesn't say he who has money, okay? But <laughs> let's take Jesus seriously that when he says watch out for greed. It's the only sin that Jesus says to watch out for. In other words, it has a way of creeping into our hearts and we don't even know it. So, you know, I always want to make my conscience easy by saying, well, he doesn't say he who has money. He says he who loves money. But, <laughs> but this is his warning, right? There must be something about money than this death-filled disappointing, confusing, and beautiful world, there must be something about money that makes us think this can give me the good life in this hard world. That money is the key that maybe I can avoid the suffering and the confusion of the world that Ecclesiastes talk to, talks about. That money can kind of ensure I have a safe, secure, good life. But he says, here's the, here's the reality. And again, this is either Solomon himself, who had a ton of money, <laughs> more than you and I, or a Solomon-like preacher that is kind of using the grid of Solomon to talk to us. And he's saying, look, he who loves money will not be satisfied with it. Again, wealth's not the problem, but he's saying, if you love it, if you pursue it, it will never, it will never satisfy you. I just, man, I just don't believe that. But he's saying it works like salt water. <laughs> that if you find yourself thirsty and you reach for salt water, it will not quench your thirst. It'll make you make your, uh, thirstier. The salt water isn't the problem. The problem is what you're trying to use it for. You're trying to quench your thirst for it. That's not what salt water is made for. And money was not made to satisfy you. It never will. And it really is. It's like how many testimonies from rich and famous people do we have to hear for us to finally believe it? Because I keep hearing them. I'm like, well, I don't know. I mean, uh, I heard about uh, Run DMC. I'm sure you all listened to Run DMC this morning. All right, the... Uh, the, uh, the first rapper with a gold album well, is, is on his comeback tour after his gold album, after he has all the riches and fame, his, after his first concert in the UK at the, uh, uh, at the comeback uh, tour when everybody was there, after it was over, he walked out onto the roof of his hotel and he actually was about to jump off and commit suicide. 
because he said life felt so meaningless. He had everything that he wanted and he was so disappointed. And like, again, you just felt Whitney Houston had everything, dies in her bathtub from, they think probably cocaine use. I mean, that the wisdom is in his word and it's out there to see that it will, it will not secure a good life. But we just keep thinking that it will. Jesus tells this parable uh, in Luke 12. <clears throat> Jesus told him a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully and he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns, build larger ones and there I'll store all my grain and my goods and I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, bear, drink and be merry. Honestly, when you hear that story and you hear what this guy did, it's like, okay, this guy had a really good, uh, really good crop. He has more, more than he can do with. So what does he do? He's like, well, I, I guess I'll build more crops and have enough that I can then just kind of say, okay, let's, let's rest. I read that and I'm like, sounds like good investment to me. <laughs> I mean, like, I think that's what I want to do. And then Jesus says this. He says, fool. This night your soul is required of you and the things you've prepared, uh, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up, for himself, uh, lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And the whole context of that parable is somebody was asking Jesus, saying, hey, make my brother divide the inheritance with me. And he said, just be on guard against covetousness. And he tells that story. Because again, when you read the, what that rich man does with a good crop, it just makes sense. I'm like, well, that's what he should do. But he is saying, man, beware of covetousness. Beware of thinking that the wealth that you build up is going to provide some kind of good life or security because it won't. It won't. And so <clears throat> why? Here's his reflection. He says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes. So here's what he's saying. He's saying the more possessions, the more money that you have, rather than it satisfying you, what you'll find is more, more consumers of that money start surrounding you. Um, have you ever experienced, okay, when I was in college, you know, and have next to no money, uh, I was paying rent for an A-frame, you know, uh, out uh, Anchorage Road, it was awesome, great house. As long as I paid, this is crazy, as long as I paid that $275 a month and the light bill for like $35, I really didn't have any worries after that. That was it, like the, the um, you know, the owner, he, he took care of the yard. He made sure, you know, if something was wrong, he had, he had to fix it. He, he even changed my air filters every two months, which was all, right? I just had to do that, and somebody else took, took care of everything else, okay? Now I have my own house. I do make more money than I did in college, thank goodness. Uh, but you know what? There's just more stuff that consumes it. Uh, now, like, you know, there's, there's house insurance. There's lawn maintenance. There's... Uh, uh, there, I mean, I, there's an accountant. I can't figure out my taxes. You, know, you start realizing, well, there's more. There just becomes more things that get attached to it. And what he says when that happens is, <laughs> when there's more consumer, consumers, then he says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. He's like, it, it, it's not that it won't even satisfy you. He says, actually, the more money you have, if you're looking to that to kind of secure a good life, he says, it'll leave you more restless you won't be able to sleep at night because now you're worried about more. <laughs> you're worried about all the stuff you got to keep up with, worried about all, all the things you got to preserve, worried about filling the blank. And I just, I slept great my sophomore year of college, you know? <laughs> I had nothing to worry about, but, uh, you know, get to class and be at the Turner Center at two o'clock to play basketball and pay my rent. 
But now, like there's, you know, these three kids I have and there's, and he's just saying, it just leaves you restless. But he says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer. He, like, he's just observing that the just kind of normal, ordinary laborer that doesn't have much, he says, that guy sleeps great. <laughs> he just kind of goes to bed at peace. But it seems to be the person with all, with all the wealth is really restless. So again, this is just a wise observation that he's making of the world and how it works. And he's begging us to see the presence of God amidst our striving for wealth. And he's saying, you've got to see that it won't provide what, what you think it will. So what does he say to do? And we've covered this a little, if you, so I'm not going um, to spend a lot of time. But again, look, look at chapter 6 down here. There's a, this is what we said, a man to whom God gives wealth, possession, honor, so he lacks nothing in all his areas, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them. What, what's something y'all said? What's, what robs us of, of the power to enjoy things like, I don't know, wealth, honor? What, what did y'all come up with? Anything? Hello, Liza. Jealousy? Okay, good. Uh, when I see that somebody else has more, uh, that, that, and that keeps me from enjoying what I have. That's great. Anything else? Protecting, Protecting it. Yeah, so fiercely trying to hold it that I don't lose it, ironically, keeps me from enjoying it. Yeah. And again, because if, if that's the thing that's going to ensure I have a good life and okay, then I better kind of hold it with a vice grip. I can't hold something with a vice grip and enjoy it at the same time. Good. Anything else? Oh, man. Yeah, how much... Uh, that's funny. I was, I was having a conversation with somebody last week... Um, we we're just talking about marriage and we're talking about just how often <laughs> it's like how often I can ignore my wife because I'm trying to get to this stage of life where I can finally enjoy her and be with her. Right? Because well, if I can just get here, then I can enjoy being with her. But it's the whole pursuit of that that I just don't, I'm not even with her. It's, it's, but today's the only day that I can be with Liza. I can't be with her 10 years from, from today. Today's the day, right? Yeah, that's, man, that is, a, that is a great one all that time. So I, <clears throat> I'll wrap it up with this. I, the the uh, preacher of Ecclesiastes is saying, look, it's not those things are bad. He's saying, here's what's good. Eat and drink and find enjoyment with the toil which toils under the sun for the few days of his life that God has given him. This is his lot. Everyone to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God will keep him occupied with joy in his heart. He's saying the way to kind of walk with money, however little or much you have, is to see the presence of God with them, that they're gifts from him. They're not everything, but they're gifts from a God who loves you. And again, I've used this example before, but I just experienced, okay, we went on a trip uh, two weeks ago uh, with Liza's parents. They took us to Belize. Believe it or not, it was awesome, okay? <laughs> and we had, uh, so here's the difference, right? Liza's parents pay for it. I don't, don't have to pay for anything. And I'll admit, when we were kind of trying to get to this place, it seemed pretty sketchy. Like we were on this kind of like puddle jumper and we were kind of landing. And I could tell my mother-in-law was getting more and more anxious. And she started saying things like, guys, I don't know what this is going to be like. I'm not sure this is going to be good. I wasn't worried at all. I didn't care. I didn't pay for it. Anything that we stayed in was going to be awesome. But again, because they had paid for it, you could feel this growing anxiety that this better be good. 
this better be the thing that I paid for, right? Because, because for her, it wasn't a, a gift. For her, she had earned it. For me, it was a gift. It was awesome. But there was just this, and that, that's the principle, that if I can see that everything is a gift, it's not earned by him, it's a gift from a father who loves me, then you can enjoy it. Uh, you don't have to hold it with a vice grip. You can see it, and his presence comes with those good gifts. All right, so that's the money. We've talked about that a little bit. Here's our term. Um, here you go. At first sight, this passage may look like the mere praise of simplicity and moderation, but in fact, the key word is God. The secret of life held out to us is openness to him, a readiness to take what, uh, what comes to us as heaven sent, whether it is toil or wealth or both. The real, really, the focus is God and his presence, and whether adversity or uh, prosperity comes. It's coming from his hand. So <clears throat> here's the other thing, all right? <clears throat> Again, we're moving through 5, 6, and 7. He asked this question in 12, at 6, 12. Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days for, uh, of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Okay, because <clears throat> right before that, right, he says, whatever has come to be has already been named. What is, what is known to man is what he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. So here's what, he, here's what the preacher's acknowledging. Whatever is your lot, wherever you find yourself in life, that actually comes from the hand of God who is in control of all things. And you probably can't change your circumstances as much as you think that you can. That's what he's saying in verse 10, right? Who, who can dispute with the one who's stronger than me? If this is the lot that I have, he's the one who's given it to me. So if, if I can't, if I don't have as much control of my circumstances as I think that I have, and my life maybe is full of suffering or even full of prosperity or whatever, he says, then, okay, what is the good life? What then is the good life if I can't really control my, change my circumstances? Because I tend to think changing my circumstances will give me the good life. But he's saying, actually, that's going to come to you from God. So what does it look like if I can't change the circumstances? That's the question that he answers in most of chapter 7. What is a good life if I can't, uh, if I can't always change my circumstances? And here's what he begins to say, all right? He says, um, there is a wisdom that will come from acknowledging death, all right? He says, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. And then verse 8, he says, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. All right, so he, he is saying, Right, a good name is better than precious ointment. That's probably was a popular saying. I, I think we'd even acknowledge that, right? Ointment is something that you can buy. It's something that makes you smell good on the outside, but it doesn't tell you about what's on the inside. And so he's saying, look, if I can't change the circumstance of my life, there is something I can know. <laughs> and I know this, that character, a name, is better than ointment. You can't buy character. You can't buy a good name. But he's saying that is better than outward perfume. Um, and so, he, right, he, he's actually assuming that we're going to agree with this, that character and your name is actually better than perfume that can kind of cover things. And then he says this, the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now, that's a shocking statement. Um, but again, he's, he's, this is what wisdom literature makes you do. It makes you start rolling over in your head. What does he mean by that? Wow, what, what did y'all say? How could the day of death be better than the day of birth? What kind of wisdom uh, is shown at the day of death rather than the day of birth? Anybody come up with something? Good. He said uh, death is kind of sobering because we think of uh, this heaven as a consolation, 
of what we kind of earned here, but it's anything but that. It is, <laughs> A, it is so much better. Uh, good, 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 good. What else? Wait, let me ask you this. What does death reveal to you about a person? Like, what does a funeral show you about a person that a birth announcement doesn't? Yeah, this is what's interesting. An obituary is a lot more telling about the wisdom and character of somebody's life than a birth announcement. I think that's kind of what he's getting at. Is he saying, look, there really is a day of death that is better than the day of birth when it comes to wisdom and learning what the good life is. Um, because yeah, like birth is tons of excitement. He's not, of course he's not discounting that. But a birth certificate tells you nothing about the trajectory of this person's life and what, it, what this person's gonna be like. But a death certificate does, an obituary does. Obituary reveals what this person's life has been about. And so S1 says, the sooner we come to terms with our death, the wiser our life has a chance to become. And some of that's because of what Errol's saying. It'll, it'll, it'll refocus us. Because death reorients us to, what it, to what's true and what matters. I mean, it's a sobering thing to think about your obituary. What would be written? It's a very sobering thing. Uh, and so he's saying, in order to live a wise life in this world, death has to be accepted. We can't live in denial of it. We actually have to live in light of the coming death because we can't avoid it. And that's just back to the question of how much of our life is spent avoiding the question of death. And I know some of y'all told me the older you get and the more, the more stuff quits working, you start, you start thinking about death more. And I, I spent so much of life in college ministry, but it was like, it just made me wonder like how much of the kind of party scene and little J joy was actually trying to avoid the reality of death. And I don't want to think about it. And I don't want to think about hard things. And he says, if you do that, it's going to be a foolish life. Um, and so he really is saying death, a house of mourning, <laughs> makes us think about life in a way that a party doesn't. Um, so then he, then, he, then he turns to this, all right? <clears throat> so if that's the case, and he's saying, I, 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 we want the presence of God in the ordinary life of the world as it really is, which is broken and hopeful and, and full of joy, but also full of sadness. He says, we just, well, we, we got to know what we do with our sadness. We got to know what we do with our sorrow. Because Rian, he said, death makes you lay something to heart. And that's wise. And so if we're not going to lay something to heart, the way we don't do that is through distraction. The preacher's saying there's, there's a wisdom to laying something hard to contemplate the way that life really is. So he's saying don't deny it and don't distract yourself. Because he says sorrow is better than laughter. By sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Um, uh, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of the fool is in the house of mirth. So he says, look, there is a real wisdom for the good life that can be had if you engage sadness in the right way. So what, again, I realize this was kind of a, a philosophy question that I liked what S1 said. But he said, wisdom does not, what's the difference between using sad things to avoid life and using sad things to learn life? What'd y'all say? Did any of y'all get to that? What's the difference? Because he is saying there is a sorrow that if you engage it, takes you to the life of living in a, in a wise way. But there's also a way to engage sorrow that makes you avoid life. Anybody come up with, with kind of uh, what he meant by that? I didn't know, so I wanted to ask you. It sounded like a cool statement, so 
Yes, Dr. Krager. Yes, you're spot on, Dr. Krager. It, the wisdom literature intentionally is supposed to make you stop because <laughs> it could see something that seems contradictory or something that seems against logic and make you contemplate how can that be the case? <laughs> how could sad, because he's saying there's a sorrow that leads to a heart made glad. That there's a deep work that can happen amidst sadness that leads to a, a, a heart made glad. Okay. So on one hand, there's an appropriate sadness over my personal sin and the wreckage that I've brought that brings me to the grace of Jesus. I come to Jesus through my sin, through my failure. And actually, you will find his smile there. Not, not by avoiding it, not by denying it, but through that. Through the tears of repentance, there really is joy. Um, not by avoiding it. Good. And, if, and see, if I sit in sadness, and I sit about how messed up I am, how broken I am, but I don't go through that to Jesus, I'm actually avoiding life itself. That's using sadness to avoid life, right? But the contradictory brings me to Jesus and to his good gifts, I would say. Liza, what were you going to say? Yeah, and it's going to be a long process. The question is, is sadness leading you to engage with Jesus and with life on the other side more and more deeply? Or is it a way of staying disengaged from life and Jesus? I think that's what he's saying. Uh, back to this one. So I'm going to read you this article uh, that I, I probably read this once or twice a year from uh, Ricky Jones. When I have, it's, it's, the title is, My No Good, Rotten, Awful Week. Okay? <laughs> And I think actually what he writes, it's really short, is it's, it's kind of a picture of how to engage a broken world uh, in a place that, that uh, keeps you engaged in life. So he starts off with, um, this is a song. He says, let sorrow do its work, sin, grief, and pain. Sweet is their parting cry, sweet their refrain. When they can sing with me, more love, O Christ, to thee, more love to thee, more love to thee. All right, he says this. I kind of hate that song. This is Ricky. It reminds me that I live in a world punctuated with pain and sorrow. I don't want to live in that world. I want to live in a world of success, joy, and ease. However, it also reminds me that the love of Christ comforts me in that pain, and somehow the more I love Christ, the more I'll find peace in the midst of this no good, rotten, awful week. It has been that kind of week, one where I've been forced to face the ugliness of child abuse, abandonment, death, adultery, and teen pregnancy. My heart has been broken many times this week. So how do you face those? Well, the first thing I do is cry. Well, technically, the first thing I do is reach for M&Ms and Arrested Development reruns to make me feel better. But they only work for a little while. And then when I go to bed, my heart is still broken, and so are my friends' lives. So I give myself time to be sad. I need to time to absorb the pain and to mourn it. I do not enjoy this process at all, but I know it's important. The second thing I do is pray. I'm sorry this isn't the first, but I'm being honest. I find these times of prayer to be extraordinarily precious. God makes special promises to be with us in times of sadness. The Lord is near to the broken heart and saves the crushed in spirit. And I find that he keeps that promise. As a matter of fact, the more time I spend with him in those moments, the more I find that he is sadder about my friend's pain than I am. I can't help but love God more in those precious moments. How amazing that the Lord of the universe knows what it feels like to mourn the death of his own son. The brokenness of this world has hurt him even more than it has hurt us last thing. He enters into that pain with us. He goes through it with us. I can't get over that amazing fact about grace. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Finally, as I mourn with God, a glimmer of light begins to dawn. God is so invested in healing this broken world that he gave his own son for it. If God would willingly give us so much for us, then we can trust him. 
We have no choice but to trust him. God believes the day of glory will be worth the dark night of pain. Since I know he loves me, I'll believe that too. I'll believe that even on no good, rotten, awful weeks. Obviously, that can be a long process that he put in one page that seems really quick. But that's it. Like in a no good, rotten, awful week, what does it look like to engage sadness in a way that leads you to Jesus and leads you to engage life still with a glad heart? It's not denial. It's not distraction. It's going to him and mourning. And what we do instead of that, and this is how I kind of bring it to an end, and this becomes his warning, <laughs> when you get in places of suffering or sadness or seeing, see, seeing the broken world, what Ecclesiastes says is there's tools that we tend to learn, that we, that we try to grab onto to fix it. And he says those are, those are the tools of fools. <laughs> so instead of doing what Ricky did, right, <clears throat> It says the patient in in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. So here's what he's saying. When you find yourself in those no good, awful, rotten weeks, he says, look, the fool moves to pride. Uh, The fool moves to exalt himself in pride, kind of saying, uh, uh, sitting in pride. He says, and there's wisdom in the patience of spirit. And then he says, be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the heart of fools. So he said the second, the second tool that kind of fools grab is anger. When, when something's gone wrong, uh, when, when my life is not the way I, I, I think it should, anger, it, it acts like an addictive drug. It feels powerful. Those chemicals kind of work on your brain, and we lose our ability to live without anger. And the day is coming where there will be no more anger. If you don't know how to live without anger now, that's going to be a strange day. Now, there is righteous anger. Don't, don't remember that. But... When that anger starts consuming you, and that's the way that you're kind of controlling the world and living in life, he says it's, 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 it's the fool's instrument. And then he says this, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. You know what he says, the other kind of foolish way to deal with a, a broken and suffering world is to talk about the past like it was so much better. Um, Right? How often do we look at the world under the sun and think, gosh, it, just, it wasn't like this 20 years ago? Because what, what we're thinking is that wisdom is going back to that. And he's saying no. So here's, I'm going to kind of finish up with this. Here's what Zach S. Wine says. This like hit me like a ton of bricks. He says, the preacher has already established that nothing new takes place under the sun. Chapter one. What is has been. Humility recognizes this truth that we are no different in heart, season, and calamity than those who have come before us. We do, now, we do now what they did then, only we express our scheming heart in different forms. Whew. The good old days are lyrics found in the songs of fools, myths among the stories that fools tell each other. At the end of the race, though, each runner ran a different portion. They all carried the same baton of hard-heartedness. So it is with each generation of human beings under the sun. He's like, man, it is a lie and foolish to say, man, it was so much better X number of years ago. He says, it's just... It, it's the same, pe- there's nothing new under the sun. It might be different schemes, but it's all there. And so engage it where you are. God's presence can meet you where you are. It's, the answer isn't to go back. The answer is God is with you in his gifts. He's with you in adversity. He's with you in that no good, awful, rotten week. And you can know that by looking at the cross. That he knows your pain. He knows your suffering. And he promises not to go back 20 years, but to one day, someday heal it all. And so you can trust him and, and experience his presence then. So that is the, uh, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, kind of in the ordinary life, walking with money, walking with disappointment, suffering, uh, and telling us to lean in that God's presence can actually meet you in that and bring joy. So.
1030. Uh, we always got to be done. Let me, uh, let me pray. Father, uh, thanks for this just piercing wisdom. Uh, some of the questions, like Rob said, that just seem illogical. Uh, they make us stop and think. And I pray that as we think, uh, the wisdom of Jesus uh, would descend upon us because we need that. Um, we ask this in your son's name, I pray. Amen.